Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Convert Central. I'm Kevin Sidik Lim, the host of Convert Central, and I'd like to welcome you to Season 3 of Convert Central. Our podcast focuses on the challenges that Muslim converts face along their conversion journey to help Muslims from all backgrounds to find a strong foothold in Islam. Follow our Instagram and LinkedIn page at Convert Central, and I look forward to sharing with you all the beneficial series we plan for the year. For now, I'd like to welcome you to Season 3 of Convert Central. Welcome back to Convert Central. So we are at the last episode of Thinking It Through, episode 8 today. And alhamdulillah, what a strive he has been. So as with all the other episodes that we've had uh, in this series, we would like to first uh, reiterate that a very important point about this series is that the episodes build upon each other. So coming to episode 8, you will feel extremely lost. You won't understand most of the things that we are discussing unless you go back to the first episode of the series, which in this case is our Instagram live. And we will, there, there we will discuss a framework that we'll be using and it will be applied across all, all the episodes. So you understand that this, epi- this series will build upon every of the discussions you've had in the previous few episodes. So Alhamdulillah, today we are closing off the, the, the entire series with two very special guests. And, um, I, I, and of course, you guys are no stranger to one because he's been with us through the uh, uh, seven other episodes. We start talking about some of them. And the other guest uh, speaker we have is Brother Ali. He's been here in Commerce Central for... Uh, quite a few times and but actually uh, for season 3 I don't think he has been on Commerce Central yet so Alhamdulillah it's a good time for him to join us back on Commerce Central talking about uh, you know the topic that we're going to discuss today so before I go into the topic itself let me just give a quick summary or maybe not a quick summary as, as quick as the previous episodes because you're now at the end of the series so I have to try to summarize the entire series for everyone who's listening but uh, as I go through the summary you guys realize how it is to summarize and you guys realize that it's just better for you guys to go to the first episode and listen down so what basically thinking it through is is we are, we are trying to think it through with you guys the listeners whoever you are you guys being born muslims you guys being people learning about religion in general stumbled upon commerce central just wondering what religion is we're thinking it through with all of you guys we're going to tackle big questions and thinking it through and we start off actually uh, answering big questions with, with framework because we can't, we can't answer anything without proper structure. And uh, that is actually featured on our IG Live. We talked about the different framework that we've actually considered to uh, answer the questions that we try to answer. Some factors in, in choosing a proper framework and talking about the Islamic framework that we've chosen to answer the questions that we had uh, answered from episode 1 to episode 7. So that's IG Live. And in our episode 1, which is the podcast, the first episode of our podcast, Thinking It Through 1, being uh, a, a reviewed worldview, an Islamic worldview, we actually wanted to establish the proof at the, of the existence of God, being the fundamental, the bedrock of the framework that we're using to tackle these questions. And as with all of you guys, when you start to think about religion, right, like it's, it's thinking about higher power, thinking about what's out there. So we attempt to establish what, what's out there, of uh, what's out there being God with three of the concepts that we had shared in episode one. So anyone who wants to learn about the proofs of the existence of God, go back to episode one and listen to the three proofs of God. And so we move on to the journey of how people will understand religion. And after we have established the existence of God, one would naturally progress to think about, so, so who is God? Like, what is God like, correct? And that's what exactly episode two is. So using the Islamic framework that we've, we've talked about, we answered questions about God's attributes and God and we Muslims call uh, God Allah. Um, Allah is the uh, is what 
uh, is addressed in using the Arabic language. So we talk about God's attributes, Allah's attributes, and questions related to his attributes. So for example, why can't God create another God, another Allah, or destroy himself? And we answer that through the understanding of God, the nature of God, and God's relation to man through the worldview itself. And we move on to episode 3, where after we understand the nature of God, we, as human beings, we, we try to relate the understanding to ourselves. We talk about uh, how is our will determined by the attributes of God? How, is, uh, how, do our, how our will interacts with the will of God? And we try to answer uh, these questions through the understanding of man, ourselves. And of course, we also answer questions like why are some humans born without a limb? And why are some are born with extra limbs? We move on to episode 4, where we answer using the the framework that we built upon, we answered questions like, why does God not make us die early if you are going to be sinners? And of course, moving on to the understanding of the universe, the nature of the universe to answer these questions. So other than uh, answering questions regarding uh, the will of God, we also understood how the universe plays a part in our life and how uh, the universe interacts with God itself. So uh, God himself, sorry. So, we talked about how the universe is always dependent upon God and God is not uh, akin to a, the clockmaker where after he has, he has created the clock, he just uh, plays a, a passive role in, in, in how the clock would operate. And then we move on to episode 5, which is the second part of episode 4 because we talked about universe and that is split into two parts. And so question 5 is more uh, specific to answering questions itself. So we answered three main questions. If Allah, if God is all-merciful and all-powerful, why are there Muslims who suffer in the world? And what does Islam say about the existence of inequality in this world? And we, we finished off by answering the question of uh, if, if a uh, locality or country suffers a, a calamity or, or suffers some challenges, uh, does that mean that uh, God is unhappy with the country's people? So you apply the understanding that we've tried to establish from episode 1 all the way to episode 4 and 5 to, understand, to answer questions like this. So we moved on next to episode 6 and 7, which talked about... Um, here after in episode 6. So naturally after we've contemplated all about God and, and, and subsequently we, we say, okay, there's, there's a God out there. But after life is something that is like a, it's like a second afterthought when, when we talk about God because one can believe in God but not believe in afterlife. So we talked about why, it is, why is it important to believe in, in the afterlife and what version of the afterlife is the true version of the afterlife as uh, given to us as revealed by the Islamic worldview. And how the existence of our afterlife proves that life is fair and it completes our understanding of, of, of our life itself. Move on to episode 7, which is the previous episode. And we actually, we started episode 7 off by, by saying that episode 1 to 6 was essentially the first half of the Shahada. Uh, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah, which means I bear witness that there is no God other than Allah. And we tried to compact the second half of the Shahada into episode 7. Ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which means I uh, bear, witness, bear witness that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the messenger of Allah. So we talked about prophethood naturally, and because most of the time after we submitted to uh, the afterlife and God, then we, we move on to prophets and we think, why is there a need for prophets, right? So we, we explain the essentials of prophethood, the function of prophets, and, and, and the introduction to our Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, as the seal of the prophets in Islam. And we talked about uh, the miracle of the of, of Prophet Muhammad, which is the Quran. And many people would have questions about the authenticity of the Quran as a divine text and how the Quran itself was, was compiled. So we answered questions like this for, for those who are uh, looking into specific questions more pertaining to 
uh, specific Islamic questions. And today, after we've addressed the general public with all the questions that you guys have sent us, and we and we hope that we've answered them in a way that is thought provoking and allows you guys to get closer to your to 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 uh, an understanding, a clearer understanding of what religion is and what religion should be. Episode eight is our opportunity, and and after seven long episodes, it's our opportunity to jump a little bit more into Islam. So today we are going to expand on Islamic rulings, and in episode seven we ended off the episode by talking about by giving you guys a, a sneak peek, a teaser of how um of, of the question using the question. Why do Islamic rulings seem contrary sometimes to modern science? So if you want the answer to that, either listen on to the rest of this episode to get, get the full understanding or jump back to the sneak peek in episode 7. So today, we have the opportunity to talk about the Sharia law in Islam and some questions about the Sharia law, even from born Muslims themselves. And we'll talk about why uh, about schools of thought that exist in Islam. And we also talk about how uh, Islamic rulings can, can and should still be relevant across time and in our lives today. So it's, it's, it's a mouthful, like I mentioned, it's a mouthful. Uh, but right now, the reason why we brought Brother Ali on is because he's, been, he's, he's a student convert. So he's seen every single stage. I'm sure he has, he has had many, uh, he has made many clarifications across his convert journey. So I'd like to pose this question to uh, brother, brother Ali before we start. And now uh, maybe ask him what are some of his clarifications he needed uh, in his journey as a mu'ala, as a convert of uh, coming to Islam about Islamic rulings. Are there some questions that he had? Uh, and subsequently, we try to we, we try to un answer these questions uh, with uh, the sharing from Ustaz Dr. Mubarak, inshallah. So, uh, Brother Ali, so uh, I'm sure people know you already on, on Convert Central and because you have your Convert story on uh, our platform, maybe you can tell us some of the uh, uh, experiences you've had understanding Islamic rulings. Okay, Assalamualaikum, Brother Kevin Siddiq and everyone. Uh, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. Okay, uh, so prior to my conversion to Islam, uh, of course, I didn't uh, exactly know that there are actually going to be a lot of rulings in Islam because uh, I embraced Islam when I was 15. And of course, upon embracing Islam, um, I, I, I did not really um, ponder too much about uh, the knowledge and also the rulings of Islam. But of course, um, uh, upon embracing Islam, when I met a lot of Muslims, I started attending classes. Of course, a few... Um, uh, a few teachers did uh, bring forward this uh, vast subject of Islamic uh, ruling to me, which I uh, definitely I was very confused because, okay, firstly, as a new Muslim, I think uh, there are a few terms which we may be get, uh, that which we uh, may feel a little confused about, like Makasi uh, Sharia, Fiqh, and Hukum and Hakam. So these are keywords that are used to describe uh, the Islamic ruling. So firstly, I, I, I actually lost track on the meaning behind it, like what is Sharia, what is, uh, like what are the differences among them and what is the similarities among them? Like, is it a noun and a verb or something like that? Because we do not speak Arabic. Okay, that is one. And also, uh, in, as time to come, I, I also start to realize that um, I, I did, I, I did uh, startle upon a few rulings because uh, I always believe that uh, Islam is a very universal religion. So any kind of teachings uh, or rulings about Islam, it should um, be applicable to anyone around the globe. So um, when I traveled to a few countries and all, I realized that actually certain rulings uh, may be practiced in a certain country, but it may not be practiced by some other people. So that is one thing. And then it came, uh, and then I came about. Um, in the differences of uh, school of thoughts, so there were different uh, differences in rulings among them, you know, and all. And of course, before I even uh, realized that actually um, 
they had their similarities and differences, but of course, the contradictions among the four school of thoughts in their rulings also did uh, startle me like, like how do a Muslim uh, conduct themselves in their daily activities with so many different kinds of rulings, which uh, may or may not be applicable to them. So these are one of the main few concerns I had in my early days as Muslim. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much for sharing with us, Brother Ali. So, without further ado, I'll leave it to Ustaz to help us dispel all of these uh, queries that we have and uh, get ready for our last episode and get ready for the last segment of Thinking It True. Bismillah, Ustaz. Thank you so much. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi ta'ala wabarakatuh. It's good to see everyone, to, to, to have all of you here uh, for this continuing journey of Thinking It True. And once again, thank you, Convert Central, uh, for wanting eight episodes with me on these uh, difficult, difficult questions, and to also listening through uh, the framework and the difficult argument, uh, big ideas that has been introduced. So therefore, as how Brother Siddiq has mentioned, I do encourage all of you uh, to listen through from episode number one, especially the IG. Right, in order for you to be able to follow through uh, the whole discussion. You might not be able to understand it the first go, right? but uh, listen to it again. Right? And uh, if you have clarification, go approach them uh, for, cl- for, for clarification or approach any of the uh, Asatizas at the Muslims Convert Association of Singapore where they are able to help you, inshallah. Now, uh, the question about Sharia, Islamic law. Okay, so let me just give an overview of this. Now, the Arabic terms, as how Brother Ali mentioned, the term Sharia, the term Fiqh, the term Qanun, the term Fatwa, the term Hukum Hakam, as how Brother Ali says, are all translated as Islamic law in the English language. This single phrase, Islamic law, does not capture the meanings and the nuances of these different terminologies that are used within the Islamic intellectual tradition. Due to the inability of the Arabic language to capture the meanings of these terms, many misconceptions with regard to the Sharia have clouded minds and discussions. Unfortunately, these understandings and misconceptions are not only found within those who do not profess Islam as their faith, but are also rampant between the Muslims. When Muslims are incapable of possessing an accurate and precise understanding of the terms and the related concepts, it is inevitable that the misrepresentation become more acute with others. Question like, is there a problem with Islamic law? Or is Islamic law still applicable in contemporary society? Are bound to get answers that go tangential from the central objectives of Islamic law. Now, let me define three of the terms mentioned just now that are all translated as Islamic law. Sharia, fiqh, and fatwa. First, sharia. Sharia is the revelation that the Prophet ﷺ had received and made practicing it the message and mission of his life. That is, the Quran and the prophetic tradition. The term fiqh means is the huge collection of juridical opinion that were given by various jurists from various schools of thought in regards to the application of the Sharia, which was defined above just now, to their various real-life situation throughout the past 14 centuries. 
the term fatwa is the application of sharia of fiqh to muslims real life today in plain english right the answer to the above questions okay? now if we mean by islamic law the sharia which is the revelation that was given to the prophet which he internalized practiced in his own life and went through a long educational process okay let me let me repeat eh? let me repeat from fatwa okay okay fatwa the application of sharia of fiqh to muslims real life today now if we go back to the question that was asked previously on top is islamic law still relevant okay or is uh, there a problem with islamic law now if we mean by islamic law the sharia which is the revelation that was given to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam which he internalized practice in his own life and went through a long educational process to educate his companions and the world about it then the answer is a definite no there is no problem with the islamic law it is a way of life that is all about justice mercy wisdom and good now if we mean by the islamic law the fiqh which is the islamic schools of laws right which are wealthy of its heritage then the answer is also a no there is nothing wrong generally speaking with the juridical reasoning carried by scholars for their own environments and times it is true that some individual scholars had made mistakes none of us are free from mistakes or had made controversial positions on issue however this is the nature of juridical research the role of scholars at all times is to correct each other and participate in ongoing debate now if we mean islamic law has fatwa then the answer is it depends on how the fatwa is issued some fatwa which is a plural for fatwa are manifestation of islam and its moral values and some others are simply wrong and un-islamic if the fatwa is copied verbatim from some classical book in the islamic law then it is quite possibly flawed because it is quite probably addressing a different world with different circumstances if the fatwa is based on some sort of twisted interpretation of a script with an aim to serve the political interests of some powerful people then it is wrong and un-islamic if the fatwa is allowing people to commit an act of injustice discrimination harm or immorality even if it were to be based on some sort of interpretation that it is also wrong and un-islamic if the fatwa is issued based on the islamic authentic sources on one hand while keeping people's welfare and the principal values or purpose of the islamic law which we call maqasid sharia brother ali mentioned about it in mind on the other hand then it is a correct and valid fatwa so it is so vast and you can see that the english term islamic law is unable to capture the nuances of the arabic term and how these various dimensions are been applied within a society now let me just give a bit more detail of the relationship between fiqh and sharia 
where both again has been translated as Islamic law. The word fiqh is used in the Quran and Hadith in various forms to refer to understanding, comprehension, and gaining knowledge of the religion in general. Eventually, and since the end of the era of the imams of the Islamic schools of thought, the word fiqh has been typically defined as knowledge of practical revealed rulings extracted from detailed evidences. Thus, fiqh is limited to practical versus theological issues. Detailed evidences are verses from the Quran and the narrations of hadith which encapsulates the prophetic implementation of the Quran. On the other hand, the term Sharia law has negative connotation in the English language because it is normally used to refer to various corporal punishment used in some countries. Statistically speaking, this punishment has been applied predominantly on the weak and marginalized in this society. This partial application raises serious questions about the political motives behind applying these punishments regardless of the juridical, theological debates over them. Nevertheless, the word Sharia is used in the Quran to mean a revealed way of life. The famous translation by Yusuf Ali translated them as law and way, respectively. Another translation by Bikhtal translated them as divine law and road. Another translation, Irvin, translated them as code of law and high road. Therefore, Sharia can also mean a way of life, as how Professor Dr. Tariq Ramadan translated it in his book, To Be a European Muslim, on page 28, you can find it. Now, it is a necessary for a number of theoretical and practical reasons to clearly distinguish the concept of fiqh from the concept of sharia. Theoretically speaking, the two terms refers to two different meanings. Fiqh represents the cognitive part of the Islamic law to use a system's term, while sharia, by definition, represents the heavenly part of this law. Thus, the term fiqh is used for people with understanding, perception, and cognition and it's not to be used for God. On the other hand, the term ar-sharia, ar the, the term ar-sharia is a name for God, which means the legislator, and could not be used for human except for the Prophet ﷺ when he conveys a message from God. Alhamdulillah, Ustaz. Thank you so much for giving us an overview. It's truly important to understand the actual translations and the meaning of different terms we use in Islam uh, pertaining to talking about Islamic rulings because most of these discussions that we as non-Muslims coming into Islam or learning about Islam in general, we're exposed to is the English translation. So, it, of course, we, in, in, in school as a uni kid, we learn about fallacies, right? Uh, in, in, in clear cognitive thinking, thinking clearly, thinking critically. And one of these important points is to make sure that the terms that you guys are talking about within an argument or a discussion, that, is, the, that the terms are properly defined and that you guys, two parties are referring to the same terms. And, and that's even more important here because uh, when I try to answer these questions that we try to answer, some of the perceptions that we try to answer, sometimes they're not referring to uh, what we think they're referring to when they're talking about Islamic rulings. And that we will actually talk about in a later part. So, Alhamdulillah, uh, thank you so much, Ustaz, for touching on that. So, actually, you, you mentioned about uh, the four Imams. So, 
as 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 brother Ali mentioned, and, and for myself, even coming to Islam, we we learn a little bit about Islam and realize that there are there are different schools of law in Islam. So, the question of the upon this matter is that if all of Islam, including Sharia, comes from from Allah, from God, the same source, why are there different schools of law? It's a very important question, all right? And we also need to under and and the answer is also very important. Yeah, when we say that it comes from one source, does it mean that it has to be uniform across? As we have mentioned private previously, unity doesn't mean uniformity. Well, now let us answer this question uh, from an historical perspective. Okay? We are required to look at the historical development of law. Now, during the time of the Prophet, all things go back to the Prophet. Companions will just ask the Prophet for answers to their queries. Even within the prophetic era, the Prophet gave different answers to similar questions to his companions due to many considerations. Now, post-prophetic era, with the expansion of Islam into other physical lands with new cultures, new experience that the companions develop through their interaction with the people from, from different civilizations, the companions started to face new questions with no available direct answers. In these cases, they clearly applied their own sense of public interest, especially those who were in the government positions, for instance. The, for instance, issues in terms of the conquered land, the issues of liberal liability, the issue on the collecting of the Quran, and also right, Sayyidina Omar, right, one of the greatest companions, one of the great companions, uh, legal opinions. However, several factors do contributed to a divergence of juridical opinions within the community of companions and eventually the formation of a first categorization of schools of law based on their methodology of juridical reasoning. In Arabic, you call it ijtihad, which is the use of the mind, the use of the akal in being able to interpret the text with the context. The schools, or rather the tendencies, were, were the supporters of opinion and the supporters of narration. So you have these two main schools that give more toward the narration, the Quran and the Hadith. The other one gives more uh, focus upon the use of the akal. But none of these two says that the revelation is not needed. And they are briefly discussed in various contemporary accounts of the evolution of fiqh. Now, the factors that lead to the formation of these two tendencies could be summarized in three factors, mainly political or sectarian conflicts, migration of the companions, and personalities of the imam of the time. Right? Now, this is a huge topic, and there are so many books that you can go to read. One of the books that you can go to read is, I encourage you to read one of the books by my teachers, Professor Jasir Auda, with the title Maqasid Sharia as the philosophy of Islamic law to understand better this. You can go to another book right, by one, another of my teacher, which is Sheikh Jibril Haddad on the four schools, on the four imams. And a very a more simple book as an introduction, right, you can go to uh, Dr. Bilal Phillips on the evolution of it. Thank you, Ustaz, for answering that question. Um, I think that is a very good point when we talk about the need for um, the need for us to build upon the essence of Sharia 
and contextualize it to our societies today. Like as you mentioned, there are many things that exist today uh, that, are, that don't exist in the past. We've, we've changed, we've uh, migrated or we've upgraded all the way from the usage of camels in the time of the Prophet to the usage of cars. And we've, 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 we've had many innovations in time to come as well. And, and hence, uh, schools of uh, jurisprudence, uh, Islamic rulings, will have to evolve as well. Uh, we have to also um, be con- contextualized to our time and our needs. So, of course, when it is, con- it is contextualized, it is contextualized by somebody with subjective opinions, and which is why, like as you mentioned, these subjective opinions and of course the circumstances in which the persons, the the, the people who are contextualizing Islamic uh, uh, law to their locality, will affect the type the type of law that uh, is 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 implemented. So, which is why there are different schools of law. So, of course, we, will, we want to understand then uh, how, uh, how Islamic law today plays a part in our life and how we can understand Islamic law. So, we have another new set of questions to, to, to clear up some misconceptions about Islamic rulings. And I'll start with the first one, right? And uh, the first one deals with punishments in Islamic uh, law. And, of course, nowadays we hear about how uh, Islamic law is, is cruel and, and because of the fact that there, there's amputation and there's stoning. So maybe Ustaz, you can help us to clarify uh, this question for us. Bismillah. All right. Another big question down there. Okay. When we talk about uh, when the term Sharia law is used in English, the immediate picture that we get is about people walking without hands or they are being stoned. Right? Now this is due to the uh, negative representation. Now let us look at it again from a more uh, macro perspective. Now the Islamic criminal law uh, is only a branch of the laws that govern the lives of Muslims. The other branches of Islamic law are laws that govern the acts of worship, the laws that govern family, and laws that govern human-to-human interaction, including business and economics. Specific punishment are spelled out within the criminal law. When one human being infringes upon the basic rights of other human beings, despite knowing that those actions are wrong and sanctioned by the law. Within the other categories of fiqh, for example, all right, in worshipping, no physical punishment are spelled out for those intentionally miss their regular solat or fasting. Although by law, they are to repay the missed salat or fasting at another time, their refusal will not end them being punishable physically. Those punishment has been delayed to the next life. Now, the penalties for crimes that where the punishment is spelt out are divided into three categories. Now, these categories are number one, what we call kisos, number two, what we call hudud, and number three is what we call ta'azir. Right? These are uh, 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 terminologies within Islamic law. So you want to know more, you need to read and find out. Now, based on these categories, just based on these categories, not all crimes are punishable by amputation or stoning. In addition, for the specific crime that is punishable for amputation or stoning, there are strict criteria and evidential proof that must be presented before this capital punishment is met out. Similar to civil law, capital punishment are not by default the punishment for crimes of murder, robbery or rape or drug trafficking. In Islamic criminal law, 
but the most severe punishment when the convict and the crime are proven without any reasonable doubt. The criteria for witnesses and evidence are spelled out with the law to ensure justice. So it's not just the punishment, but the criteria of witness and evidence so that there is no injustice that is put, put there. In addition to justice, there is a, a beautiful component of mercy and compassion that is present within the penal code, which to a certain extent missing from civil laws. Now, in order to understand these points, we need to study and read more about these different categories. All right, thank you, Ustaz. And we move on to the next uh, clarification that we are trying to present. And that clarification is talking about how Islamic law is too strict in our world nowadays. And uh, there are so many new inventions that allow us to uh, do many things more effectively without the consequences. But Muslims still cannot drink alcohol, we can't eat pork, uh, we can't free mix between genders, and, and many more. So I'll invite Ustaz to continue our clarification with this point. Right. Now, if we were to focus just on the prohibition, right, we think that the prohibitions are more. But in actual fact, the prohibitions are very little as compared to what is halal. One of the most basic principles is that when it comes to human-human interaction, everything is permissible unless there is a clear text okay, from the reviewed law that prohibits it. So the starting point all right, within Islamic law when it comes to the human-to-human uh, -human interaction, including business, uh, including business, is that the starting point is lawful. Okay? But this concept of lawful and prohibited and usually we'll talk about it in terms of halal and haram, has been known to every people since ancient times. However, people have differed in defining the scope, variety, and causes of the boost and prohibition, most of which were a product of their primitive belief, superstition, and myth. Then came the divinely revealed religions with their laws and injunction concerning the halal and the haram uplifting the human being from the level of superstition, myth, and tribalism to the level of dignity which befits a human being. However, in the religions revealed prior to Islam, there were some prohibitions and permission which were legislated for a temporary period in relation to the specific condition of the people and their environment. For example, God prohibited some good things to the children of Israel as a punishment for their rebellious attitude. Thereafter, Prophet Isa told the people that he had come, as mentioned in the Quran, coming, confirming the truth of what was before me of the Torah, the gospel, and to make lawful to you some of what was prohibited for you. This is revealed in the Quran. Right? Chapter 3, verse number 15. Now, the Islamic view of halal and haram is very simple and clear. It is a part of that great trust which God offered to the heavens, the earth, and the mountains, which they declined, but which we accepted. This trust requires us to carry out the duties placed on us by God as the vicegerent and trustee on earth and to assume accountability concerning them. This responsibility is the basis on which the human individual will be judged by God and given his reward and punishment. Because of this trust, God gave us intellect, will, power, 
and freedom of choice. Ikhtiar. Because of this, he sent his messengers and revealed his books. It is not for us to ask, why is there halal and haram? Why I am not left free to do as I please? For this is precisely the test for the freedom of choice and action that is being given to us. Moreover, we are neither a purely spiritual being like the angels, nor simply a creature of instinct like the animals. Rather, we occupy a position between the two. We can attain or even surpass the spiritual heights of angels, or we can sing to the level of the beast or even lower. From another perspective, the halal and the haram are part of a total legal system of Islam, its sharia, a system whose primary objective is good of humankind. The Islamic sharia removes from human beings harmful, burdensome, customs and superstition, aiming to simplify and ease the business of day-to-day -day living. Its principles are designed to protect us from evil and to benefit us in all aspects of our life. And they are designed to benefit everyone in the community, the rich and the poor, the rulers and the rule, the men and the women, as well as to benefit the whole of humanity throughout the earth in various countries and climates with its multitude of groupings and in every period of time throughout succeeding generation. This religion came as a mercy from God to include all his servants in the final stage among the various stages of humankind. Concerning his messenger, God says, and we have not sent thee except as a mercy for all the worlds. The prophet himself said, I am a merciful gift. One aspect of this mercy is that God removed from the Muslim Ummah all traces of fanaticism and zealotry as well as all the means of declaring things to be halal and haram. There are principles within the legal system that guide Muslim in general and Muslim jurists in particular on how to determine halal and haram in Islam as our world develops. Thank you, Ustaz, for the answer. So move on to the next part where we talk about uh, how is Islamic law relevant in our times where many people say it's outdated. So um, maybe Ustaz can provide us a clarification of, of whether Islamic law is arcade and irrelevant in our contemporary times. All right. Now we ask this question. Why is giving charity one of Islam's principal pillars? What are the physical and spiritual benefits of fasting the month of Ramadan? Why is drinking any amount of alcohol a major sin in Islam? What is the link between today's notion of human rights and Islamic law? How can the Islamic law contribute to development of civility? Now, we have this principle called Maqasid al-Sharia, the objective of the divine law, are principles that provide answers to the above question and similar question about the Islamic law. Maqasid objective includes the wisdom behind rulings, such as enhancing social welfare, which is one of the wisdom behind charity, and developing consciousness of God, which is one of the wisdom behind fasting. Makasit are also good ends that the laws aim to achieve by blocking or opening certain means. Thus, the objective of preserving people's minds and soul explain the total and strict Islamic ban on alcohol and intoxicants. Makasid are also the group of divine intent and moral concept upon which the Islamic law is based, such as justice, 
human dignity, free will, magnanimity, facilitation, and social cooperation. Thus, they represent the link between the Islamic law of today's notion of human rights, development, and civility. The term maqasid or maqsid with the plural maqasid refers to a purpose, objective, principle, intent, goal, and or telios in Greek. Finality in French. Right? And some other language which I do not know how to pronounce it. <laughs> okay? But the term maqasid of the Islamic laws are the objective or the purposes behind Islamic ruling. For a number of Islamic legal theories, it is an alternative expression to people's interests. Islamic theories of goals evolve over the century, especially in the 20th century. So Islam recognizes the changing needs of the human beings as the society changes within the environment. Based on this dynamic characteristic of Makassid, contemporary scholars of Islamic law are more, or more specifically those that focus their discussion on delineating the goals of the Sharia, provided expansion to the traditional five categories of human necessities. These five categories of human necessities is the necessity of life, the necessity of religion, the necessity of the intellect, the necessity of wealth, the necessity of progeny. So these are the traditional five categories, but the, the Makasit looks at it and has expanded it right, to also include honor and dignity and also now has included that the purpose of the law is also in the protection of the environment. So considering the scope of rulings, contemporary scholarship introduced new conceptions and dimensions. Therefore, when we look at Islamic law, there are components that are permanent. There are components that are evolving and changing. Those that are permanent are those clear indications that it cannot be changed like your five times daily prayers, like your fasting in a month of Ramadan, doing for Hajj, going into your, doing your zakat. These are very clear ones that does not change and it is accepted as a consensus by the whole community from the past to the present. All others are areas which there are changes that can be done. And who has that responsibility of leading the community in thinking through this? These are the scholars who are trained in laws. Same thing, you will always go to a well-trained lawyer when it comes to matters of laws. Same thing will come also within the Islamic ruling. You need to look for matters in laws. Go to those people who are trained on how they are able right, to read law to come up with laws. Thank you, Ustaz, for that clarification. And the last question uh, about regarding Islamic law is that when someone comes into Islam and, some, uh, and, and, and we live the life guided by Islamic law, does it cause one to lose our cultural identity? All right. Now, classical Islamic law did not speak of culture per se, since it is a modern behavioral concept. Instead, the law focused on what we may call culture's most tangible and important component, custom and usage, al-uruf and al-ada which all legal schools recognize as essential to the proper application of the law, although differing on definition and their measure of authority. Now, in Islamic jurisprudence, custom and usage 
connote those aspects of local culture which are generally recognized as good, beneficial, or merely harmless. In no school did respect for culture amount to blanket acceptance. Local culture had to be appraised in terms of the transcendent norms of Islamic law, which means that the rejection of abhorrent practices like the ancient Mediterranean custom of honor killings now reasserting itself in the context of contemporary cultural breakdown or at the other extreme, the sexual promiscuity prevalent in modern culture. One of the Islamic law's five universal maxim clearly declared, culture usage shall have the weight of law. To reject sound custom and usage was not only counterproductive, it brought excessive difficulty and unwarranted harm to people. Another well-known principle of Islamic jurisprudence emphasized this fact and advice, culture usage is second nature, by which it implied that it is as difficult for people to go against their established custom as it is for them to defy their instinctive nature. Consequently, wise application of the law requires broad accommodation of local norms, which should be altered or obstructed only when absolutely necessary. Being attentive to local norms implies meeting people halfway and leads necessarily to broad cultural resemblance. In this regard, Islamic jurisprudence distinguish between subservient imitation of others, which reflects a problematic sense of one's own identity and was generally regarded as forbidden or reprehensible and the mere fact of outward resemblance, which was required, recommendable, or simply neutral as the case may be. Now, a famous judge of the 9th century and legal authority of the 11th century, sorry, uh, uh, I repeat this, eh? a famous judge and legal authority of the 11th century, Abdul Wahab al-Baghdadi declared, the rejection of cultural usage has no meaning at all. To follow sound custom, Repeat, to follow sound custom is an obligation. Another jurist consult of the same, during the same time emphasized, whatever is established by sound custom is equally well established by sound legal proof. Meaning that Islamic law implicitly endorses all good aspects of local culture that is in accordance to the revelation. The famous 14th century the Grenadan Jurist Consult, Ashaltabi, unquestionably one of the most brilliant minds in the Islamic legal theory and history, considered that juristic incompetence should, I repeat, right, the famous 14th century Grenadian, uh, the famous 14th century Jurist Consult that came uh, from the Muslim Spain during that period of time unquestionably one of the most brilliant minds of the Islamic legal theory conscious that juristic incompetence could impose no difficulty upon a people harsher than to require them to repudiate their local sound custom and conventional usage. By contrast, he insisted that the art of handing down legal judgment in harmony with the good aspect of local culture fulfilled the fundamental Islamic legal objective of 
buttressing society's general well-being. In the same spirit, a later judicial authority asserted allowing the people to follow their custom, usage, and general aspiration in life is obligatory. To hand down rulings in opposition to this is gross deviation and tyranny. Now, times change and viable cultures adapt. It was a matter of consensus among Islamic legal thinkers that the legal judgment of earlier times had to be brought under constant review to ensure that they remain in keeping with the time. But that does not mean that all things can change. Keeping with the time means that it is also has to be kept within the framework of the Sharia, which is the revelation. A standard legal, a standard legal aphorism declared, let no one repudiates the change of rulings with the change of time. By the same token, Islamic legal consensus renounced mechanical application of the law through unthinking reiteration of standard text. An eminent Syrian scholar warned that any jurist who held unbendingly to the standard legal decision of his school without regard to changing times and circumstances would necessarily obliterate fundamental rights and extensive benefit, bringing about harm far exceeding any good he might possibly achieve. He further asserted that such blindness constituted nothing less than oppression and gross injustice. Therefore, going back to the question, within the Islamic law itself, cultural identity is taken into great consideration that the juries came out with very, very systematic way on how the law, on how the Sharia is used to determine whether could a culture, could the custom or usage be included within the law. Therefore, Islamic law does not lose one, does not, Islamic law, I repeat, Islamic law does not make one loses its cultural identity, but Islamic law makes one rethink the kind of custom and usage, the custom and the habitual things that you do within your culture to see whether are they within the legal framework of the revelation. Thank you, Ustaz, for the clarifications. So right now, at this point of time, we've answered uh, a few clarifications regarding Islamic law, and we hope that we've given you guys a good introduction into the subject of Islamic law itself. So at this point of time, I would like to pass the time back to Brother Ali. So at the start of the episode itself, we've gotten him to talk about his clarification regarding Islamic law itself. So at, at this point of time, at the end of the episode, how has some of our discussion improved your perspective on Islamic law itself? Similar. Alhamdulillah. Uh, firstly, of course, we, we would all love to thank um, Mr. Mubarak for the very brief explanation about uh, our concerns uh, raised earlier on. Alhamdulillah, I think after uh, all that, that has been shared, I think we all have, uh, have gotten a clearer perspective, especially on the meanings behind all these terminologies of Sharia, fake, Makasih, uh, Sharia, Hukum and Hakam, you know, all things like this have been clearly explained. And moreover, also uh, talking about uh, the differences in... Uh, opinions of the scholars, uh, opinions of the differences in the school of thoughts, I think it was very clearly uh, explained. 
and uh, it has it has uh, given us um, a much more um, better clarity than before, for sure, inshallah. And also, especially uh, brother Kevin, like you mentioned earlier, like uh, especially for we Singaporeans, you know, who live in Singapore with uh, different customs, different culture, meeting new people, uh, interacting with you know various kind of people from different background. I think Ustaz Mubarak has made it um, very clearly to us that um, not everything uh, Islam doesn't prohibit us from doing all kind of interaction from people of course uh, like like you mentioned there is actually more uh, permissibility than compared to prohibitions you know we are just always focusing on whatever that's haram but there's also, there's also a lot that has been uh, made, uh, made permissible for, for we uh, Muslims so with all that I think uh, it is not uh, like how some converts may think that Islam is going to be a very tough religion based on ruling but uh, in fact it has actually designed in a way to make things easy for we Muslims so that is what I have understood from today's uh, session. Alhamdulillah. Thank you, Brother Ali SL. So, uh, I think uh, it's, it's good that we also bring in converts to join us in this series. So, of course, at, at the same time, we want to capture the fact that whether uh, the content you've shared on the podcast, whether has it really, really helped these converts or not. And I think personally, as a convert itself, it helped me to understand uh, faith better. Of course, when we talk about religion itself, uh, definitely religion is a topic of faith. Uh, at, at, at its essence, we believe in, in, in God, right? And, and, and this is why uh, faith itself forms the basis of uh, our belief and, and of our religion. But of course, even in Islam itself, we are encouraged to seek knowledge. We are encouraged to find the signs. We've, we've talked about this in the previous few episodes that points us to God. We are, we are also then even Sharia law itself it's a, it's a, it's a way for us to um, realize and witness God in, in our lives. So the many points discussed in this series that we, we hope that uh, not just uh, to help us think about uh, religion as a place in our lives, but rather we think our approach to life itself to, to help us to see whether our approach to life thus far has it made sense or not. So, of course, at this point of time, I would like to thank Ustaz for really helping us on this journey. Uh, about two months ago, we reached out to Ustaz and it's, it's really been a lot of work. Um, and we are we're actually glad that uh, Allah uh, has given us this opportunity to work with Ustaz, you know, during the June holidays for some uh, preparation time. And now that it's coming to a very uh, holistic conclusion, uh, you know, now that we are all getting busy, now that school is starting. So, uh, Ustaz, we are really so thankful for, for you and your presence on, on this series itself. Um, before we also wrap up the series, uh, we also like to share some concluding thoughts where this entire series itself, we are just, we are trying to assist and facilitate a, uh, a thought process. We're trying to start a discussion uh, within the community. And of course, we, we, as mentioned in all our episodes, we're never trying to give definitive answers. We are never saying that this is the exact answer and there's no room for other opinions to come in. And in our first few episodes, we've, we've re-emphasized on the fact that we have questions and we have answers and both of them come from a place of trying to find certainty. So this is our intention of trying to allow uh, listeners, our listeners like, like you guys to help, help you guys find certainty. And of course, we also want to strengthen our own certainty uh, uh, itself when we are uh, making a series like this. So thank you, uh, Ustaz. Uh, and thank you, Brother Ali, for sharing your views. Um, we also want to re-emphasize that all goodness from our discussion really comes from God and Allah. And, uh, and also seek your forgiveness for any shortcomings we've had on the series itself. So, uh, alhamdulillah, I shared some of my concluding thoughts and I think personally I've learned so much, but maybe I'll pass the time on to Ustaz. 
uh, he's been he's, he's been mainly telling us about uh, so much content and, 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 and food for thought. Maybe I would just like to get Ustaz's thought on this series itself. Bismillah. Well, the formula in Islam, the Islamic worldview is a very simple formula. The formula in Islamic worldview is basically the testimony of God. The testimony that there is no other God except Allah. And then the second half of it, which is we testify that the Prophet ﷺ is the final messenger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, these two uh, components of the testimony defines who Muslims are. It speaks directly to the human natural disposition where the human being requires a transcendent being, a belief in the transcendent being to fill the vacuum that is inside their spiritual need. And after that, all right, after knowing that, Right, we require some form of guidance. So therefore, all the knowledge that develops within uh, Islam or within humanity is basically trying to all right, um, understand these two dimensions or these two aspects of the testimony of it. So Islam is simple in a sense that by saying the Shahada, you are already a Muslim. At the same time, it becomes very complex and deep from the shahada itself when we try and go and see how is this how does this shahada becomes the foundation of all thoughts and action within the islamic world view yeah at this point of time uh still we understand that some of you guys might have more clarification required so we do intend to do a, a series like this in the future. But right now, at this point of time, I'd like to give a short sneak peek into our next series, which is called Regardless of Race. And if you guys are wondering why this sounds familiar and uh, throwing back to all of uh, secondary school times and of course to start, we also know very well, this is part of our pledge, you know, and coming in July is Shisha Harmony Day. So Regardless of Race will feature four different languages, our podcast will in four different languages with converts of different races to capture their common stories in their, uh, their, their mother tongue itself. So uh, you won't hear as much of me anymore uh, as you guys have heard for the past one to two years. This is where the month where I get to, to take a break. We'll start off the, uh, regardless of race with Brother Ali again in the next episode next week. We'll get his common story in, in his mother tongue which is the Tamil language. And inshallah, uh, for, the guest, uh, for the guest host wise, we'll keep it uh, a surprise to the next episode. So stay tuned. Uh, we would encourage you guys to share this uh, series, which is a good opportunity to get people who are not too comfortable with talking or learning about religion in English yet to listen to some common stories that are in their own mother tongue. So we look forward to see you guys. And of course, as always, it's always interesting to get to know, um, you know, the perspectives of new converts in, in any language. And of course, in this series itself, the, the perspectives and the thoughts of Ustaz. So it's a blessing to be part of Convert Central. It's a blessing to be part of hosting Convert Central. And uh, like, like I've, I've, I've mentioned earlier, it's really a, a blessing to be in the presence of Ustaz and, and Brother Ali today. So I'd like to end this uh, podcast by asking and asking Ustaz to help us uh, recite Tasbih Kalfar and Surah to Asa. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim seek any uh, apologies from all the listeners for any shortcomings in the each uh, episode 
that uh, you have heard from me. Everything that is good comes from Allah, and everything which is not right uh, is due to my own weaknesses. Being a student in within Islam, being a seeker in this religion, and still learning about our rich Islamic intellectual tradition. Thank you, Ustaz. See you all in the next episode. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.